So I talked to one of the great Beatle authors, Devin McKinney, um, earlier this year about the get back stuff. Um, and of course, it leads to all different kinds of things about Beatle politics and how we think about the band and where they were in that moment. But I also thought that it, it helps um, cast some light on these uh, new revolver sessions that we're listening to now that we have the deluxe box. So I'm posting it here now, um, and I hope you enjoyed it. It's longer than the typical podcast, but it's also really kind of intriguing, especially if you're into Beatles stuff. I'll be following up about more with Revolver um, as we get to listening to it, um, and there's a new controversy developing around the speed of rain, which is really fascinating. The original speed, what was the original speed and tempo, um, and why does it sound so peculiar on the box set? Um, and so enjoy, and uh, remember, we're talking about this in the aftermath of the Get Back a production by Peter Jackson, which we both really uh, adored. And this is also uh, more of a conversation than an interview because we're really just trying to put our heads together and make sense of things. So I think it's I think it's fun that way too. Also, there's a really fun detail about um, Devin McKinney quoting a critic about his work, and I don't even recognize the quote, but it turns out that it's something I said. And I didn't realize it until after we talked. So that's the fun bit of business there at the end. I guess the big frame is that, you know, like pretty much everyone else, I thought it was marvelous. I was immersed, like, from the word go. Um, and I stayed immersed all the way through. Uh, I thought it was just the right length. Um, it allowed for plenty of times when you you had enough space to say to yourself, gee, this is going on for a while. But then to, to take a step back from that and say, well, yeah, but that feels right. And I wanted to go on because I'm really, I feel like I'm really living the moments and the hours and the progress of this thing. So, you know, it's just like reading a long novel. There are passages that are going to be less exciting than others, but you need to get through those passages to get to the more climactic moments. And uh, there's something satisfying about breathing in and out with a work of art that way. And um, it's been a long time since I, I had that experience with a, with a piece of work. Um, and then it was about the Beatles. I mean, that was just all gravy in a sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I don't really have anything um, outstandingly negative to say about it. I, I was, uh, I was moved. I was excited. I was, completely enthralled and uh if i may say i was watching it with my wife who also loves the beatles but is by no means as immersed in them uh in the way that i have been that you have been that you know hardcore fans have been but just on the level of uh a study of creativity and a study of uh, of a unit doing its thing over a long period of time she was right. she was enthralled too and i know that a lot of people were it got to people who were not just hardcore fans but also um people who love and care about the beatles but had never spent that much time with them before so i think uh, right. i think there was something universal in it as well interesting because i found i found it less universal um my wife who is a a fiction writer um she was less enchanted by it <laughs> 
Mm-hmm. She, she, we've watched some of part two together, and she was like, you know, just not my thing. And I, of mm-hmm. course, have been, you know, really immersed in it. And so I think, I, I don't know, I, I think some creative people are able to tune into that creative line of it, and others are just like it's not. Part of the idea formed about it is that I think the target audience really is more for musicians mm-hmm. than for other people, um, especially if you've worked in a band and you understand how many potholes there are along the way to getting a song off the ground and to getting to getting an ensemble to gel mm-hmm. and that's part of what i that's part of what i've always been attracted to about this material because i saw it first when i was 10 and the first thing i was really sort of beguiled by was how you know when you're 10 these guys are legends you know they're just like they're not they're superhuman and the idea that they were releasing this this mass market thing that they were the biggest band in the world and they were showing us that they sound lousy a lot of the time. I don't know. I just mm-hmm. found that so endearing and just so like intimate. Like I just, <laughs> it, it had never occurred to me that you could be that big and that also just like that. I don't know that revealing, like it just was very, very sort of like, and then later, you know, when, when Lennon talks about how, look, you know, this is us with our pants down, please stop the game. Like, it makes a lot more sense as you sort of get older and you, you sort of understand the context better. Um, but I certainly wasn't expecting, I'm curious why you, why you, with, were you thinking I was, that I would think that you would have a negative response to it? I, uh, I, I, I don't know. I guess it's just the critical faculty that always wants to say yes, but. You know, they always oh, wants yeah. to look at another angle, and uh, I, I don't know. By this by this time, it's probably the most boring thing in the world to hear yet another encomium to how wonderful Jet Park was, because <laughs> that has been almost the universal response. Uh, but you know, I think it's well deserved, and within that within that uh, uh, positive response are all sorts of nuances that that each of us as individuals could go in. There are certain themes that we respond to that other people yeah. might have passed them by. So, I mean, there's, there's plenty to be mined within a positive yeah, response. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I want to drill down into. So what were the scenes that you found yourself attracted to or surprised by or intrigued by? Well, one thing that I've been trying to explain to people who may not be, you know, Beale maniacs since the time since they were 10 or something, is that, okay, for years now, decades now, we've been listening, us hardcore fans have been listening to the tapes of these sessions. We've been looking at the photographs from these sessions. Now we're actually seeing moving picture footage of those same sounds being made and those same poses that we've seen from the photographs being acted out. And that is just, you know, inexpressibly special. Yeah, um, yeah. I, 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 I go back to the moment when John shows that, you know, he's got a wound on his, on his, uh, left index finger and he's putting the band-aid on. Well, I remember that band-aid from the photographs of those, of those Apple basement sessions. He's got that band-aid as he's making the cord. Um, another scene shows George putting the dickie bow around his neck that you see in a lot of other photos. It's like, you know, right. seeing how the, how those things came together is just really, really special. And right. then, of course, that that's not even to touch the music. Um, as you know, one of the things that has been endlessly disseminated on YouTube is uh, Paul doing his first version of Get Back for Ringo and George. Right. right. Um, 
Now, that is a piece of music that has always been one of my favorite moments from the bootleg tapes. Um, the way you hear it, it kind of fades in out of silence. You don't hear any preparatory chat or anything. It just kind of appears. And it's Paul going, you know, he doesn't have any lyrics to speak of. And he's got a, a final tune, but the feel is completely different. And it always evoked in my mind a counterculture Western from the late 60s, early 70s, um, like a Peck and Pop thing or maybe a Jim Jarmusch dead man thing with this, this uh, hippie cowboy riding of a dust storm. And that's exactly what that, that, that music has always evoked for me. But to see it made for the first time, uh, it's old for me, but in a way that I had set up in my mind without any visual to define it for me. It was kind of like my fantasy of what that music sounds like set against the reality of it being made. And then, of course, as you say, all these musicians, you know, most of them much bigger than you and me, who didn't grow up with uh, with the Beatles or the, even the second wave Beatles like I did, um, uh, uh, embracing that as, yeah, this is what we do. This is music that we made, too, and here are the Beatles doing it. And so, right. I mean, that was like a like a tri-level thrill for me to hear the sound that I had always imagined and then to later see people embrace it in a, in a completely different way that I, I couldn't have conceived of. But I yeah. totally got once I started right. happening. Right. So that was that was definitely a favorite moment, Paul doing that song for the first time. And uh, I was glad it had so much of Yoko in the movie, particularly that, that freak-out jam uh, that happened right after George quit the band yeah. On, uh, yeah. on January 10th. That's yeah. also always been another big favorite moment of mine from the bootlegs. Um, um, and it, it was actually, I think I'm going to go back to listening to it because I I, I, I heard a, a level of anger and of kind of a, a vomiting of anxiety and bad feeling and uh, conflicted feeling in the sound that if you watch the video, it's, it's or the film, it's, it's, they're having a lot more fun with it than I yeah. thought that they were having. So yeah. that in itself was also revelatory. But, um, that might be one case where the um, the film contradicted a fantasy of mine, but I, pr- I prefer the fantasy in that case. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, you're right. The, the Having the visual element has been really uh, jarring and enlightening in, in some very, very interesting ways. I'm I confess I'm not as much of a I'm, – I'm really intrigued by these sessions, but I don't have, like, whatever it is, the full 64 discs of all the Nagra tapes. I don't – so I don't have – Oh, a, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, 83, actually. 80 Road. I mean – 80 Road. You know, that's road. that's, that's right. a compilation from Purple Chick. Yeah. Right. So, you know, I I admire people who have waded in, but I have not – you know, so I have more snippets and sort of sort – of, it's a little bit hazier for me, but I have my favorite moments, and mm-hmm. um, now they're just – it's it's like going back and, you know, looking at, like, family movies that have been, like, you know, buffed up, and, and it's sort of like this super reality you get because you have – like, you do have this imaginative construction – this ima- your, your imagination has constructed these elements out of the sounds we have mostly and the pictures, but to actually see it, it actually now has. There's, it's very interesting. It has, there's a lot more banality to it. There's a lot more sort of whimsical, spontaneous. You know, like in the middle of a dull, a dull period, they can smile and the, the room kind of lights up, mm-hmm. and you realize this is just a quotidian, like it's just them showing up every day, trying to just 
get stuff going and see what happens. Um, so I do think that the visual elements and, you know, his the job that he's done cleaning up both the sound and the video is obviously, like, fantastic. And it's really great that we have had a Beatles scholar doing that. I suppose what I, where I go to with my critical um, thinking is I'm, I'm very suspicious of the, the way this thing has been sold. And I really think that people have re- been reprinting the Apple press releases in ways that really does the, does the material a, a, a disservice. And so what I mean by that is, you know, it's all about, oh, they, you know, this was supposedly the breakup film, the breakup period. And actually, they get along great. There would no, you know, like it's, it's much more even keeled than anyone thought. And Peter Jackson's, right, his main quote is, I kept waiting for fights to break out and there were no, you know, there were no fights. And mm-hmm. I think that is, I don't think that really provides the proper context because what I see if you if you place it in January of 69, what I see is them actually just getting a toehold on their Abbey Road work, right? And mm-hmm. this stuff they shelve. This stuff they say, this is not at the snuff. And Glenn Johns, who is like at least as much of a super genius as George Martin, who is like busy, like capturing all this. I mean, he, he is just an amazing to, to see that guy. What is he, 21? Unbelievable to see mm-hmm. Martin keep his hands off it the whole time and let Glenn Johns just kind of do the thing. He he presents the mixes right in March of '69 and they turn him down. They just release "Get Back" and "Don't Let Me Down" right as a single, and then they go on to do "Old Brown Shoe." And then the rest of that summer is they're doing Abbey Road and they're behaving as though this stuff is just never going to come out. And it's only a year later when they start suing each other. And they need, you know, Alan Klein impresses upon them, you need some liquidity here, (laughs) that they say, all right, well, we have to put this stuff out now. And then they go through this giant turmoil of arguing about what shape it's going to take and Bill Spector coming in and Paul McCartney going dark and that whole thing. And I think, you know, I think the context of the original release of the movie in 1970 is colored by the headlines at the time, which were... The Beatles are breaking up. Paul McCartney is suing the other three. It's a, you know, it's like that's what's in the news. That's what's in the air. And the audience is in just kind of a state of disbelief. Like they're breaking up, but there's a new movie. Like what is this, right? And we have Abbey Road, which is, you know, I mean, it's not my favorite, but it's very respectable. And then you have Let It Be, which is, I don't know, for me it was, you know, for me it was really important. Um, It's maybe... Maybe a notch down. I don't know. I kind of prefer it to Abbey Road, but whatever. You can have these arguments about where it sits, but it's not. It's not a bad piece. Of, you know, it's like it's got great material on it, and the, and the rooftop is just stellar. So, I think it's. I think in 1970 you have this very confused mixed signal going out from the band. We're breaking up, and here's our new movie. <laughs> And here's new product, right? And it's Phil Spector. It's like, well, that's he's a heavy hitter. Like, you have to listen to that. You have to try and make sense of that. Um, and then Lennon gives his Rolling Stone interview in December. And I think that just immediately colors everything that people are thinking about the Beatles because mm-hmm. he's so bitter. He's so half-cocked. He's so, you know, we're fed up with being sidemen for Paul. And that just really, like, that cocks everybody's head and it turns all it just really affects the way people look at all this material. So the material has gotten 
the original context has actually, was actually really quite deceptive. And some of it was intentional. Some of it was just happenstance and just what they were in a corner. They needed to release some stuff. But to put it out now and say, oh, well, this was the breakup thing, and actually they get along. It's like, no, it never was the breakup thing, right? Mm-hmm. And but to go through this whole explanation with the general audience, like who, ca- you know, it's like who cares? You know, it's like nobody, very few people care about all this context. But I do think that the, that um, a lot of the stuff that's outside of the frame of this picture is it's really important to understanding what's going on in there. Uh, but, you know, as a specialist, I guess I'm just, I just have that super focus, right? I just really like that. That stuff matters to me, obviously, a lot more than it matters to everybody else. I'm very happy that it's a huge hit. I went to see it on IMAX. It was just great. I think we have easily the best cut of the rooftop that we'll ever get. But mm-hmm. I still want, like, just a full rooftop, I don't, I'm like, I'm really, you know, after you see those person on the street interviews twice, you don't want to ever see them again. I mean, they're funny once, but I'd really just rather them, like, let's get, let's have a cut where it's just all on the roof, please. I mean, mm-hmm. of course, yeah. you know, anyway, that's sort of, those are sort of my takeaways so far from it. And it's been really curious because when I first saw it, I was really, I was obviously, I was enraptured, but I, yeah, I have a hard time keeping a critical distance from this material because it's so, it was so central to my love affair with the band early on. And then I went back to your book and I read your um, stuff on Get Back and you're quite, you know, you're... <laughs> my experience was that it was not the it, same yeah, as It no. doesn't rank, right? It just doesn't rank for you. Um, well, I mean, and, you're, you're, you're a good... Uh, I mean, you're a few years older than me, so you are coming... Yes. I mean, you sa- as you said, you, you saw the movie when you were 10. How is something not going to make a very particular impression upon you when you were 10? By right. the mid to late 70s, when I'm coming along and starting to get into serious Beatle mania... Let It Be, the film, is well out of circulation. It wasn't right. until right. probably the early to mid-80s that I was able to see it, not in a very bad bootleg VHS, which I which I right. still have. But, I mean, right. I still have not seen a clean, pristine version of that movie. I think it's a pretty dismal movie, but, I mean, it's twice as dismal when you're seeing a third-generation VHS copy right. of a right. bootleg. Um so in that sense, yeah, context does color everything, and timing counts for a lot. When you encounter something, under what circumstances, uh, by the time I came along, a lot of the mythology or the you know the standard narrative had already been written, and the standard narrative uh, accorded let it be a much lower place. It was like this bad ending, this absolute dark disillusion at the end right, of, a, right. of a glorious story and right, right. you know bef- before you before you figure out how to think for yourself you assume everything is true uh, right, I mean the, right. Lenin, <laughs> the, the Lenin interview is a perfect example people didn't know how to think for themselves about the Beatles and so they spent right. decades assuming that everything he said was was the God's truth, that he didn't have right. any hidden agendas, that he didn't have right. a distorted point of view. Uh, I think it took it took us a long, long time to outgrow his estimation of the White Album, for instance. It was me in a session band. It was Paul in a session band. Well, in a sense, right. but in a sense, you've got more intense group work going on there than you had on Sgt. Pepper, for instance, where George had hardly anything to do, and, and Ringo waited around playing cards with Mal until they needed right. him again. Um, right. So, for example, so that's just 
example of how we need to outgrow context, including the context that is directed for us by what the Beatles themselves said and how they wanted things to be perceived. And he's, as you say, he was so bitter, he wanted to make such a, 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 a brutal and decisive break with the band. Of course he was scorching that earth. He wanted to right. he, he, he wanted everyone else to feel as bad about it as, as he wanted to feel at right. that time. Right. But we have to grow up and we have to realize that, well, no, that's only one flavor in the sauce. That's only one bit of the context with what John or Paul or any of them had to say about it. And in that sense, the context that surrounds this new release, yeah, it's very, very interesting uh, in, in all the ways that you described, but it doesn't change the thing that's on the screen, which is going to last, which is going to outlast any number of contexts that are going to come and go. Um and that's kind of like where I, I, I find everything else very interesting, but I always go back to the work itself. What is the work itself, irrespective of any of what anyone might say about it or try to contextualize it? Sure. Oh, yeah. I agree. Uh, agree with all of that. And, and, and I don't um, feel like you're saying anything different, just that that's the sum of what comes up in my mind in response to what you said. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about that original cut, because I think that one of the very interesting things this uh, Peter Jackson cut does is it sheds light on Lindsay Hogg's cut, which I think now, I mean, I think now it looks like uh, obviously vastly inferior and as though he's, you know, and Peter Jackson has talked about this as though he's need, he needs to cut certain scenes because he knows what the track list is. So he has to get an I me mind clip in there. He, it's like he's he's doing a checklist. And it is, it makes for a really weirdly disjointed and the tone is so off. And I, I realize that a lot of people never saw this on the big screen, but my image of this movie is very much like yours. It's very much like blurred and old VHS tape. I mean, even before it existed in that format, we would go look at it and it was so curious to look at because it was so soft focused and it was so it had it had this blurry quality not just in the visual but in the whole way the thing moved and felt and that's mm -hmm. what made the rooftop thing just so crisp and vital it just was like whoa this was like completely unexpected to pop out of this movie after you've been asleep for an hour all of a sudden they are the greatest rock and roll band in the world and one mm -hmm. after 909 is just like how could they how could they possibly get that much energy out of that silly little song that is all of a sudden like <laughs> majestic in scope, right? I mean it just is extraordinary what happens. And um so, you know, in in a certain way I think your experience of it as a as a blurry bootleg is actually quite authentic. That's the way everyone did. I remember talking with um a guy who had, who was, so I grew up in Boulder. I was 10 that summer. I talked with this guy who was a, you know, they were, they were hippies. Like there was this definitely like there was a hippie scene and he told me he had walked out on let it be. And I thought this was just absolutely unthinkable. Like how could you be a, everyone was a Beatle fan. Everyone knew they were the greatest, coolest thing. And I said, why would you walk out on it? He said, it just didn't seem like the Beatles to me. It just didn't seem, it seemed so foreign and alien. I just didn't, I couldn't sit through it. And that seemed to me like the ultimate act of rebellion. He was rejecting the Beatles. Oh, my God. Like, that was like, 
whoa, what an independent thinker, you know, <laughs> to a 10-year-old. Mm-hmm. But there was that reaction to it. The other reaction that we got all the way through, so I would go to, there would be midnight showings. There was, uh, when I lived in Pueblo, Colorado for a few years, there was a weekly matinee of Hard Day's Night, Yellow Submarine, and Let It Be for a dollar every Saturday and Sunday at noon. And I was there every weekend, both days. I mean, I lived there. And so I saw it just a zillion times. And um, when Yoko Ono appears on the screen, she would get hissed. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you how many times. I can't tell you how many times I sat in the movie theater and thought, why are they – like, what is going on? This is just repulsive that they're hissing at this woman. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was a very common response because, you know, she's – Japanese, eh? so it's racist, and she broke up the band. You know, it's like she's this giant witch or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you definitely want to put a pin in that because there's a, I think there's a lot to talk about there. Anyway, I, I think that um, – I think you're right about these received narratives, how they get built, and that's part of what I'm trying to articulate through some of the stuff I've written and these these conversations I want to keep having about it is I'd really like to make sure that this point of view gets – put across somehow, which is scholars see this thing, we we look at this thing a little bit differently than the general audience, and there's, mm-hmm. you know, the, there's there's more to be gleaned here. So let's, let's go to that. I mean, so number one is what has been very interesting to me about what they've kept in the movie about John's heroin use and that interview that he's overdoing on the other side of the uh, set when uh, Dick James comes in and now there's so there's a YouTube copy of this interview he does and he steps out for a minute and he comes back and he's actually he's clearly just taking some drugs he's like a totally different person when he comes back mm-hmm. but people don't people don't reflect on okay so the heroin use is daily and he's joking with Peter Sellers about leaving his syringes out in the bathroom you know like when when I talk to uh Miles, what's that guy? Yeah, Barry Miles. Okay, so he said something that I now I didn't put in my book because I couldn't verify it. But he's but I said to me so. It's always been curious to me that Lennon's so quiet and let it be. You know, he it's clear that that's just that that's just the weird kind of a Beatles session because Lennon was never so quiet. You can't imagine Lennon being quiet in a Beatles session. Was that because? They just went through a miscarriage. Was he still grieving? Is that your take on that? And he just waved me off. He just laughed. He said, oh, you couldn't be more wrong. This is what he said to me. He said, we knew Lennon was on heroin all the way through 1968, and we were happy about it because it got him off acid. Hmm. Now, that I can't print that as fact, but that's what that guy said to me. I mean, I just think that is the most... I'm just, I still kind of am in shock about that quote, but I, that makes me look at his drug use so differently. And if it's progressed that far by January, and everyone's saying, oh, Yoko's stock goes way up, she just sits there pleasantly, right? But his insecurity is big on parade in this cut, right? His drug use is big on parade in this cut. And they're both heroin users during her pregnancy. I mean, mm-hmm. how come they get a giant – nobody's talking about this. To me, that's just like – that's got to be top-shelf material for people to comment on. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I don't think enough people are saying about uh, – are, are saying that or pointing that out as contradictory. Um, 
I'm not sure what you say about it beyond that point without, you know, descending into moralizing. I mean, what would you like people to be saying about it other than other than just simply saying they were both on heroin at this time? Well, and, and I, you know, I'm not I'm not sure, and but I do think that you could. I mean, I do think that you know, well, there's just there's just way that it's getting referred to as a documentary, which I have a problem with because the exec producers are the subjects of the film. So, but you know, you could put, you could just put like, you know, Lennon was arrested on this date in November. Uh, Yoko suffered a miscarriage on this date in December. He spent 10 days in the hospital with her or whatever. You know, this is four weeks later, or this is two weeks later. They're showing up for these things looking like this to mm-hmm. me. Part of Paul's work ethic that never gets discussed enough, which is certainly heroic, and Paul Stock definitely goes up for me watching this cut of the movie, but he there, it's a rescue job. I think that whole trip to India is a rescue job. Let's get John out of the clubs. Let's get him away from this routine. Let's, let's dry him out. He's clearly the person who needs the most maintenance in the band, right? Mm-hmm. And he's essential. Like, his material is key like there's no they're busy trying to save the band the whole operation and they've just started a company they can't like this can't be falling apart right now it's just the stakes have suddenly grown so much higher so i don't know that this stuff again it's outside the frame but nobody's talking about like yeah i think paul knows that he needs to keep john working this january otherwise he might just watch john slip away like that's just unthinkable. But you look at yeah. John in the in the Twickenham footage, and you think this guy really is a mess. He's a total mess. Mm-hmm. Well, I think he actually looks a lot better. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I misheard what you said. You're right. He did, he is much worse in Twickenham as opposed to the Apple Basement. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it might be one of those cases where people like you and me, I, I don't doubt that there are an infinite number of conversations like this going on all over the world right now because these are the things we care about. Are they filtering through the general public? That I don't know. Does right. the general public know or care that John was strung out at this time? That I also don't know. Um, and once again, I, I mean, yeah, it, it, it's definitely important to understanding the whole picture, but uh, I, I don't know to what degree the general public is, is interested in that. I mean, because it only resonates with us because we know everything else about their career. You know? I don't know. I think it depends on, on people's level of investment in the totality of the band, if you will, the degree to which they care whether John was on heroin in 68 and then the, the miscarriage played and everything. I just I just don't know. I mean, we know it. We know it, and and no no doubt it influences how we hear and see that material. But it, when when combined with McCartney's whole, I mean, what do you want to call it? His his rehab project of his image and the Beatles' image, and releasing his lyrics book at the same time. <laughs> yes. so, so I, yeah, just, but, bless his heart. Bless his heart. I've been seeing the well, where Paul's new uh, up upcoming tour it's called Paul McCartney got back it's oh, like yeah. ever since the breakout 
ever since the breakup, he has done such a brilliant job of, of piggybacking his latest work on whatever the last Beatles thing was. And then I just, yeah, okay. I used to, I used to be very cynical about that. Now I think it's just great. Well, that's Paul McCartney, man. That's why, what, that's what? how you get to be the richest man in history. And, and, uh, yeah, you know, that's how you go on producing work and you're smart about it. And there's just nothing, not a damn thing wrong with that. Uh, you know, I think that's very generous. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, what really, uh, you know, I think it's absolutely right. And I think that's, I think that's his dilemma. I think once when, uh, when Lennon dies, I think it becomes being Paul McCartney becomes like a trap. I just think it's, you just can't, because you can't speak the truth about your former partner and you know where all the bodies are buried and, you can't, you just, you know, you can't say, you know, John was an ass a lot of the time, you know, you can't have any more candid conversations about this stuff once Lennon dies because our culture is so fucked up about death and, you know, being killed by a fan. I mean, it, you know, it's just the worst possible ending for the story, but the way he keeps trying to pretend and persuade us that he thinks of all his solo material as of a piece with his Beatle material it's just psychotic to me. It just is like nobody buys it. Nobody's ever, nobody, history will never look at it like that. Well, but I mean, and John he, used to say exactly the same thing to the nth degree. Nothing matters before I did mind games or wherever the fuck the last album was. None of that well, well, is as good yeah, but, as his Beatle work, with, with the exception of maybe five songs. Well, uh, but, but the, it know, was psychologically important for him to say that, as it is oh, psychologically absolutely. important for Paul to do whatever he does. Because you're right about him being in the trap of being Paul McCartney, but he's been in that trap his entire life. He was in that yeah. trap in the Beatles. It's just that yeah. it was it was a trap that was uh, lucrative and and uh, you know it worked for everyone because John was there and John was in his trap and all the right. traps that everyone was in were complementary. Everyone else is out, and after the breakup, everyone is out in the world on their own. They're still in the traps, but the, the traps are not complementary, and so they find their ways to live within them. And yeah, uh, yeah, yeah I, I, I do seek to be generous to these guys, you know, given that you know they're not going to be around much longer. But I think it's also you know a perspective of aging that you know you, you grant people their limitations in a sense. And you do recognize how much they've given you. And if if Paul had been any other way than he was, John had been any other way than he was, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have what they gave me. That's a perspective oh, uh, I choose to adopt, and I don't oh, yeah, yeah, try uh, to look. proselytize anyone else into feeling that way. But that's just the way I look. The older I get, yeah, I just I just I agree with you, and at the same time, I just resent what Paul McCartney's trying to push on us. I just, I just like, I don't, I do not. Yeah, I get it. that too. I get that but, too. Uh, I still see I that, but, but I will say that I, I feel a lot more resentment towards John's bullshit over the years than Paul's. That's just me. Oh, interesting. Because it was so much more extreme and yeah. so much more hurtful to other people. Paul was just yeah. trying to sell records. John was trying to destroy people at his worst. And I think that yeah. needs to be reckoned with. Yeah. Um, that's, um, I reluctantly agree with you about that. Reluctantly. I think, I mean, I think there's, uh, there's, uh, there's a lot of blame to go around. I don't think Lennon's the only one, but I think Lennon's volatility is especially jagged, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and understand, I say this with John Lennon being my hero of heroes. He was always right. my favorite. He is still my favorite. 
I bow to no one in my love and respect for John, but it's because of that that I feel the other stuff more intensely, because I feel that investment in him. I am not trying to bring, tear him down. I'm trying to... I'm going to spend my life trying to see him in all angles and all perspectives. And this is one that has just always been with me. So anyway, there's that. Yeah. So have you read anything good about Get Back that made you think about it differently? Or, I mean, are there any good pieces out there? I don't know if you're keeping up with stuff or. I, I did for the first few months. Um, I mean, God, it's been Thanksgiving. So it's been a few months now. But and, and I did read a lot of the initial publicity, which is to say the big splash stories um, uh, in Variety and Guardian and wherever they were. Um, frankly, no, there's not a single piece that sticks out. I, I probably got a little something from all of them, but there wasn't a single one I read that made me think, oh, i got to bookmark that because that's going to be worth coming back to. Um that's that's not to say anything against anyone. It's just uh, no, I didn't I didn't read a piece that hooked me the way say a you know I don't know a great real market piece would hook me or you know a great critic. I don't think there are any great critics out there. Uh, I mean, among the younger people who are going to be tend, tending to be writing about this now. Yeah. And if you were an editor, what piece would you be wishing you'd you would see out there? Would you like to assign your ideal critic to write? Oh, well, that's a very good question. Well, I mean, I'm trying to think of anyone who's writing about the Beatles right now uh, on a regular basis. Uh, so I, I guess that leaves out you and me because we don't write about them on a regular basis. I can't think of anyone. You know, you, you can leave this on or off the record, but I don't care if Rob Sheffield's writing on the Beatles. I always skip it. I think I never think yeah. he has anything interesting or new to say, and he just kind of flogs the same old cliches and pages of Rolling Stone. I don't care what he thinks about Get Back. Um, I was very – I have to say I was very disappointed that Greel only gave, like, one or two sentences to, in his last real-life rock. Yeah. I don't know if you saw that, but um, – Yeah, I did, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Basically, the only question he has was, well, gee, wasn't there one song they played all the way through? Well, anyone who knows those sessions could tell them, well, no. <laughs> right. No, right. When, they, when, they, when they did those old things, it was just a verse. It was just a verse in a chorus. It was just, it wasn't Peter Jackson choosing to cut everything off. So, no, I, w- I was thinking, really? That's all you thought about eight, eight hours of Get Back? So, anyway, right, I, I wish right. it had more, more, something more challenging to say about it. Well, I really wanted him to say more, too, and I felt like when he, when he went through Paul McCartney's lyrics book and he said Paul was sometimes humble, I thought that was just a vast, a vast mis- misfire. I just don't think there's anything <laughs> humble about that book, and I, you know. I haven't seen it myself. <clears throat> Oh, it's in another real life. It's in an earlier column. You can find it, but he's just like it's. He's kind of like this is curiously engaging. This book. It's sort of like his. That's the summary of his comments. But he does use the word humble at a certain point, and it's like this. I mean, how could you call? How could you? That word just does not know. Does not know. Go anywhere near that book. But yeah, well, no, I saw what Real said about it. I, I haven't seen Paul's. There's something inherently humble about a book that costs seven hundred and fifty dollars or whatever it is. So there's that. Your remark when I when I read that thing of Girl Marcus about uh, no complete songs, I thought, well, yeah, but that's always the way these documentaries are. I mean, every doc. That's my first complaint about every musical documentary. And eight days a week was 
supposedly about how great a live band they were, and they didn't have any complete songs in there. That was really a giant fumble uh, with all the great material they had. And they could have had, they could have just said, all right, three full-length songs. Let's just give them three. But nothing in that movie is full And the, But, uh, you know, ironically, that's one of the things that makes The Rooftop actually so miraculous is, you, you know, they have never played that set before. They have never, they've barely gotten through a complete version of any of those songs before. Right, am I right? right. Am I, and and when Jackson, well, no, they've done many complete versions, but not complete in the sense that, you know, that might be the one that we put on the album. Right. Um, but, and, and another thing that you're absolutely right about the, the rooftop concert, the great thing was that they played the whole damn thing, including three versions of Get Back, including right, three right. of Don't Let Me Down. You know, right. not just the, not just the ace, uh, takes that went on the album, but all of the ones that weren't quite that good. You just really, I mean, you were up there the whole time. That was great. Yes. Well, and, the, and showing the Beatles going to the look over the ledge and see how the crowd below. I mean, that's just the sweetest, sweetest footage. It never occurred to me that they did. I, I never knew that they did that. that was <laughs> so touching to me. That's so human, right? They're just like, yeah, hey, let's go see how many people are down there. I have a series of questions that I like that I just are my boilerplate. If you're up for it, I'd like to just rattle through a few of these. You can say pass to any one of them, but I'm really just kind of curious. As a critic who I admire a great deal, I'd really be curious to hear your off-the-cuff answers to some of these questions. Are you up for Well, this? thank you. Thank you. I'd, I'd love to hear them, yeah. All right. Okay. Hank or Lefty? Hank. Hank. So I have a favorite story about this question. I, I mean, you, you are talking about Hank Williams and Lucky Frizzell, right? Exactly, right? But that's okay, yeah, Hank pre- without a doubt. Okay, so that used to be a pretty – so I'm a lefty guy myself. Which is not not that I don't like how you adore Hank, but I'm just totally in in the lefty camp. But uh, it's a it's <laughs> a question enough. that that doesn't work for people under forty. You know, it used to be a pretty standard question, uh, and it's very interesting. It's a real crowbar question. A lot of people, are, uh, some people have just been like, "What? Like, what are you talking about?" For me, it was like a def- it was a defining question. So I don't know if you knew my friend Jimmy Gutterman. Did you ever come across that byline? Oh yeah, many many times I never met him. Yeah, I certainly know his work. Yeah. So he um he oh my god he, he he did those he did those best and worst uh, records ever. Yes, books. yes. I've got yes. both of those. I love those. That's where yes. I know that. Yeah, full yes. of cool stuff. Those books. Yes. So Jimmy was a dear friend of mine here in Boston. And he interviewed Buck Owens when Buck Owens' box came out, and it was an interesting story because Buck Owens uh, owned all his own back catalog. Right. So Buck mm-hmm. was in control of everything. Right. And he had. So he goes to Buck Owens' office and he interviews Buck and he starts the interview by saying, Hank or Lefty. <laughs> so I love mm-hmm. about Jim. was such a he had great chutzpah. So he says, Buck <laughs> Owens, Hank or Lefty. And Buck Owens, without pausing, says Merle. I just ah. love that story. <laughs> Is that the greatest answer ever? Yeah, yeah. Well, that that's, that that makes me feel nice about Buck Owens. I mean, I don't feel bad about oh, him, yeah. but uh, that's, oh. that's a real interesting turn of mind. Yeah, very interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. Do you have any pre-rock heroes? Pre-rock uh, in music? Uh, whatever you want. Oh well, yeah, tons. I mean, most of them yeah. are literary or film. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to think. I'm trying to narrow it down to music. Who would my? Okay, I'll go for music then. Oh wow! See, I know they exist. 
Um, I, well, heroes, that's, that's, that's a tough one. I, yeah. No, I wouldn't say I have any heroes as opposed to figures I find interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think Miles Davis is interesting. Um, I think Joey Roll Morton is interesting. Um, I think Skip James is interesting. Those, those 1924 sessions of Mississippi John Hurt, interesting. Leadbelly, tons of interesting people, but yeah. people who I found personally inspiring on the heroic level, no, no, no one before, uh, the mid 50s. Hmm. Uh, what's the best advice you ever got from another critic? Oh, wow. Okay. Good question. Um, use fewer words. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that applies to uh, all writers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, do you have a memorable disagreement with a critic you admire? Oh, no, no, Tim. Tim, let me take that back. Um, okay. The, the best advice I ever got from a critic, and this is not personally, but, but through the writing, was don't apologize for yeah, don't apologize for what you're about to say. Yeah, no, I have to tell my, my students that constantly. Don't hedge on it. Just say it. Don't, you know, perhaps. Yeah. Get perhaps out of there. Don't be. Just say it. Yeah, and, yeah. and I think too too often critics are, 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 are have a tendency to say, well, gee, this is going to sound really pretentious, but I think, well, you know, let me decide if it's pretentious or not. Don't, don't preemptively tell me that it is so that I have to perceive it that way. So, yeah, that, that kind of hedge or apology or, gee, I'm, I'm sorry to be such a critic about this, but, you know, fucking yeah. be the thing, man. You know. Yeah, so, anyway. yes. Memorable disagreement with a critic you admire. Um, uh, you mean like a personal face-to-face or just with their opinions? Oh, it could be just an, an opinion. Oh, God, yes, tons. I mean, most of them are with Grill Marcus because he's the critic I've been reading the most throughout my life. But, you know, we have strong, strong disagreements that uh, I'm sure he takes them in his stride. And I'd, I'd be curious to know what he, how he would respond. But I have many disagreements with many of his yeah. uh, closely held opinions. Uh, just to pick the one foremost in my mind, I think the novel, The Manchurian Candidate, is much better than the movie. And mm-hmm. I've always, I've always slightly resented the way when he writes about the movie, he always has to trash the novel as being garbage yeah. and worthless. Huh. And, and I think it's really, and you know, as critics, we kind of understand how other critics think and work. And I have no doubt that that is partly because he hates Richard Condon, you know, as you can tell from other Condon books that he's reviewed over the years. But I think it's also, it helps him set up the movie, which he reveres. It's his favorite movie. That's right. kind of a virgin birth. Uh, right. it's, it's kind of a, a mythology of this movie having coming out of nothing and nowhere except the, the united brilliance of these artists working at this very yeah. fraught moment in time. And yeah. so it, ha- it ha- helps him set up the drama that he wants to impart to that movie in its historical moment. I totally understand that, and I totally disagree. Yeah. I also uh, despise Steely Dan, and he loves them. So, I mean, those are just the two top things that come to mind. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Great answer. I love that answer. Oh, um, thank you. I, ideal band lineup, dead or alive? Oh, geez. Um, oh, come on. The Beatles. What almost what yeah, else okay. is <laughs> they, They're my template for every band that came after them. Everything else would be a, would be a, 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 a pale copy or a, yeah. a chasing of a ghost, you know. Yeah. Uh, do you have a favorite summer single? 
Oh, wow. What a great question. There's so many. Um, you know, you can just think about answering these in the now. It's not like, you know, it's not like you're right. We're not writing these down. We're just, this is just for, for kicks, right? Yeah, yeah, I know. It's just that I really feel like I could come up with something that was meaningful to me. Um, the thing is, it would not be by a, a famous group. It would probably be some soft rock hit from the mid-70s, because yeah. that kind of evokes evoke, the endless childhood summer for me. Let's just say Thunder Island by Jay Ferguson. Okay, there you go. Great. Uh, so is postmodernism exhausted? Um Oh, yeah. Yeah, it has been for a long time. I think it was huh. exhausted as soon as they put a name to it. Huh. And, oh, and I'm speaking as, as as someone who I was steeped in postmodernism when I started to get into literature in a big way. I discovered postmodernism before I ever discovered modernism, and I thought, fuck that. Modernism is where it's at, you know? And huh. that was when I decided postmodernism was exhausted when I when I felt like I'd had enough of it. <laughs> Oh, I love that answer. Oh, there's just a whole conversation we have to have about that answer. Oh, um, totally. Do you have a favorite? <laughs> you have a favorite rock and roll track? Uh, use of a track in a TV or a movie? Um. Oh, once again, very good. Um, out of out of a close field of competitors, I'm going to say the use of "Happy Together" at the end of the movie adaptation. Hmm. Have you ever seen that? Oh yeah. Yeah, I love that movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that's that's an example that they of used that. that. I forgot that they used that. Yeah, yeah. It just comes up. Well, I mean, the Nicolas Cage character, he sings it to his twin brother at one point. <laughs> but then over the, over the very end of the movie, it brings up the Turtles record, and it's just it's just glorious. It just it just does the happy together, da, 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 the endless fade out over these flowers just rising and dying rising and dying in, in uh, time-lapse photography, and it just kind of brings together all the beauty of the themes and the metaphors of the movie together. And one reason I love it is because I, I, I had never disliked the song, but I never felt moved by it. Well, suddenly I, I was moved by it, and ever since yeah. then I've listened, been able to listen to that song and be moved by it in a way I never was before that movie. Yeah, I haven't seen it in, God, you know, it's, what is it, 20 years old? Is that movie? Jesus. Yeah, I want yeah. to say 19, well, being John Malkovich came out in 99, adaptation was probably 2000 or 2001. Right. I just love how that movie taught me how to pronounce the word denouement. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, no, that, um, that dumb brother, he's a great character. Uh, do you have a favorite non-music critic? Uh, yeah, absolutely, David Thompson. Yeah, well, you know what? We are we, that is such a bullseye. We are so together on that. Where are you with oh, him? Good. Have you read his? Have you read his uh, his latest book? I just got it in the mail. Um, I mean, I, I ordered it. They didn't send it to me. But uh, you, you're talking about Disaster Mona Moore. Yes, yes, it's wonderful. Yeah. It, well, of course, it's wonderful. Yeah. And yeah, I keep well, going back to the encyclopedia over and over and over and over again. God, that guy's such a great writer. He is. He is. Um, yeah, in the last few years, I've read his his biography of television. That's what it's called, television and biography. Great, great I, book. Great. It book. is great. Um, what did I just say? Oh, his book on Nevada. Of all things, he 
you wrote a book all oh. about the state of Nevada, which I just read it because, oh, this is David Thompson. It might be interesting. And I was absolutely enthralled by a state I've never been to, have no desire to see, but that is just one of his quintessential works. Oh, interesting. I don't know if yeah. I know that book. I know a book called um, Warren Beatty and Desert Eyes. Oh, yeah. No, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's a different one. In Nevada came out, I want to say, in 1999. Okay, uh, I have to go get this. Absolutely. I mean, if you're a Thompson fan, that's got, like, everything you love about David Thompson. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you have a favorite quote about your own material? Oh. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a little embarrassing because it's not, like, really super public, but... um Real said something on his website a few weeks ago that, I mean, I always knew that he liked the book, but to say it's the best book about the Beatles is is, oh, yeah. is both very specific and very non-specific. And I, you know, the few times that I've ever uh, been with him, I've never, I mean, it would be very immodest to say, well, tell me exactly why you thought my <laughs> right. But but someone else, someone who I do not know, have no connection with, this was not a setup wrote in asking, so why do you like his book better than, say, Rob Sheffield's? And Greel actually used a few words to get more specific. And, I mean, those are probably the words that I will always take away um, about the book. So it's up on the Internet. You know, you can find them very easily. Anyone can see them. It's not like I'm revealing a private conversation. But uh, those are probably the words that mean the most to me. Because, I mean, you know, this is is a guy who I started reading – when I was, what, 15 or something? Yeah, yeah. You know, how could that not mean a lot? Well, it is, but, but Magic Circles is the best book about the Beatles. Okay, do you have a favorite? <laughs> Thank you. Do you have, You've do always you have... been so generous in, in, in uh, uh, speaking well of my work. I really appreciate well, you're, that. Well, uh, your book is generous. Your book is incredibly generous. Do you have a favorite Elvis moment? A favorite Elvis moment? Um Wow, what an interesting question. Um, well, it would be musical, not from any of his movies, um, and not from any of the TV shows, because uh, I like him as a recording artist uh, more than anything. It's probably um, it's probably his version of uh, Now and Then There's a Fool Such as I from 1958. Oh. Uh. I don't know why I would not encourage anyone to view that as the height of his achievement. That's just the one that it just got to my heart instantly, and it's never left. All right. I'm going to plop it in my playlist. I look forward to seeing this. All right. <laughs> who, should give, who should give it up? Uh, should the Rolling Stones give it up? Who, who among the major acts alive and working today should just hang it up? Well, yeah, because the Stones are, have been the go-to answer to that question for how many decades now yeah um um yeah it's a boring answer but let's go with the stones yeah i mean i'm trying to think of anyone else i care about who hasn't hung it up i really admire grace slick she hung it up a long time ago not because she had to because she thought you know this isn't doing it for me anymore i'm just going to stay home and paint and uh, i just thought that was such a classy move yeah um why hasn't this song ever been covered? What's the track that you cherish that nobody that 
people don't seem to get the inspiration to cover that you think is worth covering? Oh, that I, I know right off the top of my head because they said it on his last birthday. Uh, Smokey Robinson in 1967 did a, a, a minor track on the Make It Happen album, which also had Tears of a Clown on it, uh, which didn't become a number one hit until three years later. And then it came right. out again. The, al- the album was retitled Tears of a Clown. But it was originally Make It Happen, and there's a song on it called Don't Think It's Me that has always been my favorite Smokey Robinson track. And it's it's just something that is so, I mean, kind of like A Fool Such As I by Elvis. It's like it just gets me instantly, and there's a level of mystification there. That why isn't this considered one of his greatest, you know, one of the oh, greatest characters of the 60s? Why isn't yeah. other people, why haven't they discovered this, you know? It's not like my ears are so oh, I have special. To, but, I, don't, yeah. I don't know this track, so this is great. I'm going to go add this to my playlist. Tell me, yeah. I I understood that Tears of a Tears of a Clown is always really really passionate favorite of mine, but I understand it was recorded in like '65 and then it was held. They didn't put it out until '70 or '71 or something. No, what? no, they they put it out. They put it out on the. I'm pretty sure it was on that album which came out in '67 around the middle of '67, but it wasn't released as a single until 1970, and it went straight to right. the top. Right. I don't know why they held back, but then, but then again, I know that you know Marvin Gaye's "I Heard It Through the Grapevine" was held up for at least a year before they put that right. out. Right. Um, and there have been other tracks here and there that, for some reason, got held up and just kind of lost, lost to the mist of time as to why that might right. have been. Right. Uh, because to me, it's just such an obvious hit, "Tears of a Clown." I mean, to me, it's, uh, but only with time and uh, historical vantage. Do I hear that as a 1965 song and not a 1970 song? Because for me, it was an early piece of my hit parade. You know, it was like mm-hmm. that was part of that was part of 1970. But it took me a long time to realize that uh, how out of you know how anachronistic that was. Okay, last question. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to write the lead uh, for the Dylan obituary? <laughs> I'm trying to think of one, uh, uh, of a lyric that wouldn't sound like a cliche. I don't know. I see my light come shining, maybe. Okay. All right, I lied. That wasn't the last question. The last question is, what have you always wanted to be asked? Oh, yeah. What do you wish well, someone would ask you? Uh, yeah, um, version of a question you asked earlier. You asked, what's the best advice you've gotten from a critic? Um, if someone were to ask me, what advice would you give to other critics? That's a question I would like someone to ask me. Oh. And so what would it, what, what would your advice be to other critics? Don't be an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Which seems like the hardest advice for most critics to follow. I can't imagine the context out of which that question might arise. <laughs> Oh my goodness, the subtext looms, my friend, looms. Yeah, uh, I, I, I don't even have to follow it up. Let everyone fill in their own experiences with that one. Uh, Devin, this has been so much fun chatting with you. Uh, I hope we can do it yeah, again for me too. Hey, Tim, this is Devin McKinney uh, following up on my email about that one answer. Um, you can splice this in however you like. Um, yeah, the uh, remark on my work by another critic that I think has stuck with me the longest um, and in a way meant the most was actually a word that you used, uh, 
Not too long after Magic Circles came out, you were doing a podcast interview about recent Beatles books, and when mine came up, you said something that I never forgot. Uh, you said, yeah, that book kind of gives me the willies. And at the time, I was pleased, but uh, I didn't really think about it very much. I realized later that, wow, that was kind of what I was unconsciously after, was to tell the story of the Beatles in such a way that those who felt they knew it um, and were very familiar with it could maybe get a case of the willies from it <laughs> and maybe see it as just uh, a strange, dark, bizarre story as I had always seen it. So, uh, yeah, I really felt like in some sense you had gotten something, and it wasn't until you used that word that I had fully understood what I was going for. So I really appreciated that and always have. So there you go. Splice it in. Uh, anyway, take care. Talk to you soon. Bye.